You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to introduce wildlife biologist, author, Douglas Chadwick, this is a special treat. He's written 14 books, over 200 articles, National Geographic, you name it. Been all over the world. This is going to be a good one. So welcome, Douglas. Hey, thank you. That's, that's a nice introduction. I got a little bit of the world to go. I can't say I've been all over it. <laughs> it's, it seems like it. It seems like it. It does some days. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about your latest book. And this, I'm going to tell our listeners. This is something you want on your bookshelf. It is Four Fifths of Grizzly. It's a beautiful book. The images, it's not just the writing, but the stories. I am so proud to have this book now on my bookshelf. So this is something we're going to talk a little bit about today. But Douglas, before we get going, can you just give our listeners your background? Kind of, I know you cover it in the book a little bit, but where you grew up, what drew you to nature as a young boy? Sure. Um, I, you know, I pondered that question and, and I, in the book, I wrote about the fact that my, my geologist father, um, gave me a microscope when I was about eight or nine, seven, I don't remember. And, uh, I, I looked through that. Look, I was, I was a, I think I was a pretty normal kid, you know, playing little league ball and, um, getting in trouble and, and thinking up new ways to get in trouble every day. And, uh, but I, I looked through that microscope and it just opened up a world I'd never imagined before. And I also spent each summer out with my father in, in the field because he was a, uh, he was an exploratory geologist and, you know, I, I, I was a terrible geologist, Chris. I, I, he'd come over and say, what kind of rock do you have there? And I'd say, I don't know. I picked it up because I was looking at these beetles underneath them. And yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> they're just really cool. But when I looked through the microscope, um, I learned that the world was, you know, a hundred times as full of wonder as I'd, I'd ever, you know, supposed it could be. And it was already full of wonder. And, and so I go around the house picking up everything from, you know, lint and dust bunnies to, uh, you know, scab off my knee to whatever I could grab in the yard. And especially when I go get a little bit of ditch water and I put that underneath and man, it was just all these things squiggling and swimming and flashing and shining in shapes I'd never seen. And I, I gotta say, I, I think it was transformative moment. I just, I couldn't get enough of it. So it isn't like I turned into a uh, geek recluse up in my attic, but I spent a lot of time looking through that microscope, and it made me want to learn more. So, uh, and beyond that, I guess I read enough adventure books uh, as a kid that I also wanted to go out and look at the big guys in the remote parts of the world. And I was intent on getting there, and I did, courtesy of National Geographic and a lot of other folks, so. 
Yeah, and you get some of that in the book, some of your adventures. And before we started recording, you were telling me your your travels here to New Zealand and down to the sub-Antarctic islands. It's just, you've had to see some amazing, amazing places. We're going to get into it. We're going to get into it. But what I found really interesting, too, is you started off your career as a scientist. So how did you start start off, you know, researching mountain goats and, and other species? that led to your writing career? Okay. It's that part's easy. I wanted to get into wildlife biology because I had been looking at small stuff. I had been taking a lot of classes in theoretical ecology and all this stuff that that's great. It's, It's fascinating, but the academic world wasn't that emotional link that I was looking for. And I decided I needed to get out and get some some skills in the backcountry, you know, be a be a bit of a woodsman, a mountaineer, and and a project came up to study mountain goats in a remote area here in Montana, and so I I thought about it, and then I ran down to the libraries and I got all the literature on on uh, mountain goats I could find. It made a stack about a quarter of an inch tall. I mean, there was nothing. There were summer studies, nobody, and these animals were declining. And anyway, I said, boy, an animal nobody knows much about, I'll bet I can make a contribution or more likely uh, it's going to be really fun living in the mountains, (laughs) climbing up there. Uh, Mountain goats are like grizzly bears. They sort of high grade the country. They pick Uh the really wild, beautiful spots. And and I know I'll discover something, I, even if I'm not a very good scientist, because nobody knows nothing. And that, so that mm. was the fun part. And uh, then while I was there, they punched a new road into the backcountry, which was going on at a great clip in the 70s. We were trying to get into the, all the last remote places that weren't already preserved and extract something valuable. And... I watched the grizzlies dwindle, the elk dwindle, the mountain goats who were already in trouble dwindle. The bears actually <clears throat> reached the point where we listed them as endangered in the U.S. Because, and and I it it struck me. Look, I knew all about it because they were my daily life and they were my companions. But the public that owns these lands, this was national forest, um, uh, they didn't know. They weren't aware of what was going on. So I I guess I became a writer by default. I've always loved to read, and I just started getting noisy because I thought I need, I need to get a bridge between science and the public. And scientists, as you, I'm sure, know, because you are one, yeah. um, you're not great communicators. No, no, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> to each yeah. to each other, maybe in yeah. our in our yeah. high priest language that no one else can understand or interpret. Mm-hmm. But um, I just wanted to let more people know, and I wanted to go out and give something back to nature because it was already doing just wonders for me. I I loved mm-hmm. being out and and learn. Was, see the thing about nature that I discovered looking through the microscope are two things. One is most of the life on the planet's invisible. And the second thing is the more you look, the more you find. Mm-hmm. And there is no end to the wonder. It's just how much time do you want to spend looking and, 
and figuring this stuff out. And that's, that's a frontier. That's mm-hmm. like, a, you know, the backcountry is a frontier, but so is just the knowledge of, uh, we know every generation says, look, oh, we've got things pretty well figured out. We know how nature works, right? And you know so. that we're at a pretty rudimentary stage. Yeah, yeah. And and so there's lots of lots of room to go roam in that in that field, and that's what I that's what drew me onward. Oh well, it's it's amazing, and you know, it's funny. Angie, my podcast partner, and I, we you know, science communication. It's an art to be able to to talk to people and not you know that ivory tower in, in academia. So I, I get why you wouldn't want to be there. I felt that too. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So I ran off to New Zealand, right? <laughs> huh, good man. Yeah. <laughs> but but something in there you said that that I really want our listeners uh, to take away is reading. And again, a book like Four Fifths a Grizzly, these are the if you're really interested in wildlife conservation, these are the books you need to be reading. Because I've read since I was a kid in the mountains of California with my dad, you know, we'd be out there camping or fishing and we had no TVs or cell phones back then, you know, <laughs> late <laughs> 20th yeah. century. And for entertainment, we read books. Imagine and that. Yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> books are amazing. <laughs> so I, I'd like to put this up front because I, I tend to ask this later in a in an interview, but for our young listeners or any listener really that wants to be involved in wildlife conservation, what are some tips you would give them based on your life experience to get involved? Well, you already pointed out the really important part, and that is not to be a bookworm, but to read, read, read. And Again, don't be one of those people that says, you know, I think I think I know. Um, and I probably don't need to look, you know, all that much farther. And there's magic in the words themselves, but there's magic in the ideas that are expressed in them. And and if you're open to that, you know, the well, uh, let's just say the universe is waiting for you. But mm-hmm. um, beyond that. I'd say jump in with both feet. There, um, here in Montana, where I live, next to Glacier National Park, I'm not far from Yellowstone and a lot of other great country, but um, there's a lot of cit- what they call citizen science and volunteer work. And I don't know about New Zealand, but here in the U.S., the agencies are underfunded, the resource agencies, um, and they're always looking for people to help rehabilitate, you know, uh, disturbed environments, gather data. Uh, here in the mountains, there's a little, uh, it's a relative of the, of the rabbits and hares, uh, the pica. And it lives at high altitudes. And this thing, they call it a fuzzy thermometer because when this thing's body temperature reaches much above 99, it just falls over dead. And so the park is is surveying them to see, you know, we can argue about climate change separately, but they're, they want to know what's happening to the pikas because they're a wonderful part of the high country. And harvesting all these alpine wildflowers out there, spreading the seeds around. And um, anybody can just go up on a good hike or a good adventure, but also just gather a little data while they're out there and learn as you go. And 
in my case, I when I started off with mountain goats, I had no idea what I was doing. And and I just took off into the mountains and where it gets 40 below in the middle of winter and figured it out as I went along. Um, boy, other than that, I don't, I'm, I'm afraid I've just got some sort of generic ideas. I mean, you, you, you latch on to whoever's a good storyteller, whoever's a good scientist, bug them half to death to tell them, <laughs> yep, yep. ask them the same questions you just asked me, but also what do you know about a specific thing you're interested in? And what and then say what's not known and what can I do, you know, with the, whatever skills I have. And um, I don't know, go from there. I, 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 I guess I never, I never needed an extra incentive because I just needed to learn how to look and how to ask questions. And that, that's as far yeah, as I can that, go with that. Yeah, yeah. Be persistent and be yeah. persistent and read and, and gain knowledge. So that's no, good advice. It's, it's citizen science. Yeah. Just this weekend, I, I was telling you, I was out at the sanctuary and we were doing bird counts, you know, with an app. You know, we'd see a bird, we'd log it. And that gets logged. It's Cornell uh, there in the United States their bird app and just something to, you know, to help them out with. So anybody can do it. Well, and, and I say, if it's not, if it's not interesting, you're not obliged to go, you know, drudge through it. But <laughs> if you go out on, as you say, on bird counts, on freshwater quality studies, um, ordinary things, but at the same time, it's like, Oh, look what's in the water. Now, I wonder what the relationship between this animal is and that plant or that other animal or something. And that just always drew me on and on. So if you need a whole lot of incentive, uh, uh, come on out to Montana and study grizzly bears. They'll get you keyed up. (laughs) Yes, yes. we're going to talk about that. I guarantee they'll hold your interest. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. 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 Oh, gosh. All right. So I want to ask. Why are you four fifths a grizzly? Uh, yeah, it's nothing personal. Um, yeah, no, yeah. You are too. Um, yeah, no, no. It. I I chose that title as what I want to do, Chris, is get past this idea that we're. Uh, well, maybe this is part of the same discussion we've been having. I never felt separate from nature, and I never. I wasn't raised in an environment in which, you know, humans are special, unique. Uh, saving nature is kind of a luxury or um, what a, a sort of a, a nice thing to do or a special interest. You got to be a bird watcher type. You got to be an insect collector. Um, I just felt that I was... I could see parts of myself in whatever animals I was watching. And, and I think our societies have worked really hard and really long to create a notion of ourselves as distinct from the rest of nature, almost walled off. And, and then when you start looking at what we're all built of, you find out, well, wait a minute, we have 80% plus of our genes in common with every other mammal on the planet. And there are 4,600 species of them. So, you know, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, a 
four-fifths of duck-billed platypus, but that didn't seem like a really good title. <laughs> Not gripping. Right? No, no. Or I'm four-fifths of bat. Um, yeah. But, you know, I'm also four-fifths of really cute red panda over in the mountains of Burma or a snow leopard or one of your right whales down on the Auckland Islands. And um, to me, it's no wonder that we share so many qualities, especially you mentioned elephants that you had a special interest in. Yes, absolutely. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm working with another culture when I'm working with elephants. They're very social. They're very, their brain's three times the size of ours. Um, They take tremendous care of each other. They great memories as most people have heard, Um, but they, they are what they, are built of, but they're also what they've learned in a lifetime that's as long as ours. And, you know, I, I, I feel as though, well, as I read scientific papers, I, I see this expression all the time, and it's a trait formerly thought to be unique to humans. And I, each time I see that, I go, why were you so surprised? It's because we've assumed animals are, I don't know what, robots, automatons, stimulus response. They're interested in sex, food, and, you know, a warm place to sleep. And, oh, my gosh, you know, you study. I've worked with killer whales, and the same thing. They're a culture. And, in fact, anthropologists now in their papers will make comparisons between the tribes in, say, New Guinea and the cultural differences between them and different cultures of killer whales. Now we're getting somewhere. Killer whales have a brain four times the size of ours, and they live as long. And, you know, why, to me, it's the, the difference between doing behavioral research with mammals and anthropology is not not different. Um, it's, there is no difference. It's a matter of degree. So that makes sense. I mean, I maybe I no, get carried it's, away with this. It's, no, no, we. I this concept of culture with animals. I we we first breached it two years ago when we did our orca episodes, and we actually broke it up into two because, you know, we're physiologists. We you know reproductive physiology. Get down to the genetics. That's my background. With we did some behavior, but but you know the genetics of behavior when we started getting into the culture of whales and we just were blown away, like the, the digger we, you know, the, the deeper we dug in the research articles and now this concept of culture in other species, you know, like I said, elephants, and it's not just the higher order mammals. They're starting to see it in lower order mammals. Exactly. Yeah. And other vertebrates. Um, yeah. Um, well, and the other, Let's go back to four fifths of grizzly. Um, you know, we're we're <laughs> we're also fifty to sixty percent of fish. You know, <laughs> no, my favorite. My favorite, and I wrote this down. We're twenty four percent shared genes with wine grapes. <laughs> yeah, I, I I was talking to a group not long ago, and they were all having happy hour, and then I gave a talk to them, and I said, "Some of you are obviously a bit more than twenty four percent wine grape right now, <laughs> right now. <laughs> but uh, you're eighteen uh, percent. If you're drinking beer, you're eighteen percent. You know, a brewer's yeast." <laughs> 
mm-hmm. or <laughs> our baker's yeast and your 7% of bacterium. All life runs on a lot of the same metabolic principles, as you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, but the other thing is I got so tired of hearing people in conservation discussions say, you know, I'm, I'm really not, I mean, I, I hear you. That's great. Uh, I should probably do more than I do, but I'm not really into that nature stuff. And I kept thinking, oh my God, nature's totally into you. And that's not my opinion. That's a fact. And I'm, I'm counting the fact that, you know, you started off like I did, like you did as a microbe. And that's what the microscope <laughs> taught me is, is I could imagine myself at what I start at four one thousandths of an of an inch in mm-hmm. diameter, and I okay now I'm a big boy. I got thirty trillion human cells, but I've got more microbial cells like that in my body. So mm-hmm. if you ground me up and analyzed all the DNA, it'd be about one point five percent human, and the rest would be an assortment of bacteria and yeast and um, archaea and protozoans and God yes. knows and they're doing stuff for us. They're digesting my food. You know, they, they're, they're keeping me from getting, they're becoming susceptible to other diseases. They're Mm -hmm. deterring them. They're giving off hormones that probably affect my mood and Mm -hmm. therefore my thoughts. And I think our, a lot of people are keen into our microbiome these days, but boy, are we, we're at the, uh, Oh gee, we just invented fire stage of of, <laughs> or we yeah. just we just put on pants stage of of understanding that, and so I, I, and the final thing is, you know, I was still pretty young when I came on the idea that the mitochondria inside each of our cells, every plant cell, every animal cell. Um, are modified bacteria, and those are mm. what power us. Those are what make life possible. We'd be dead without them, right? Mm-hmm, we wouldn't mm-hmm. move, think, feel, or anything. And the chloroplast, I'm looking at a tree out my window as I talk to you, and and we call it a tree. And yeah, okay, it's, it's a plant, but the chloroplasts inside all that green leafy stuff out there, the photosynthesizing and the base of the food chain for so many things, that's modified cyanobacteria. So they're dual organisms like or partner organisms like we are. And um, tied to their roots are hundreds or thousands of miles of mycorrhizal fungi bringing nutrients and water. And some of them have nitrogen-fixing bacteria in their roots and providing the essential nutrients, taking the gas out of the atmosphere and giving it to the plants. And it's like, well, where's the individual here? And how am I thinking about nature? Um, I'm thinking of it the way I used to think of it sometimes as this list of creatures. And we got to go save this, that, and the other thing. Mm-hmm. And... All that I thought, well, but they're no, they're all all of them are compound critters. And nature's how can we save nature when we really don't understand the essence of it, which is partnerships and connections? So 
that's, no, why, it, that's uh, why I wrote the book. <laughs> I, I know, and it, it is, and that's why this book is just again, if you're if you're into conservation biology or interested in nature, that's why you, this book is a must read because you do talk about the interconnectedness of it all, and we really are. And it, one thing I want to jump ahead to is you 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 mentioned out of the estimated 10 million life forms that was your conservative that's a conservative estimate up to maybe 100 million you know mammals make up what was a 0.005 percent yeah it was pretty tiny <laughs> yep why are humans dominating why is this single species dominating the world like we are today like from from everything you've seen in your career yeah, you're gonna leave me with that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's uh, not good. It's not, okay, yeah. But you know, it's just we're having such an impact. Yeah. It's just yeah, yeah. Uh, well, look, it, it it's still the planet of the microbes, right? Um, they still run ecosystems, but we dominate physically dominate the land, right? We're we're terraforming this poor old planet. We're changing the skies and the composition of the seas and the uses of the land. Um, and it's because we, we are extraordinary. We have this imaginative intelligence and forethought, and there are other mammals that have those qualities, but not to the degree we do. And so we evolved very rapidly, both through genetic changes, but also through not just our genes, but our memes, the cultural transmission of learned information. Nobody does it as well as humans that we know of. And artificial intelligence may change that pretty soon. But um, I, and, and so I, I make a point of not, um, while well, there's a tendency among us environmentalists to uh, call people out for their excesses, you know, and and this emphasis on individuality and you know how much stuff can we have, all that. And but I think people are tired of that. And I want to emphasize that the things we share with animals, being more animal than we realize, being more other creature than we realize, doesn't make us less. Doesn't make us any. Um, any less wonderful than we think we are. And we got a pretty darn high opinion of ourselves. It just makes us more, but it makes us connected. And we have to realize that 12,000 years ago, humanity, I think what you were getting at, it, it was only that, that recently that we hit our first million in population. That's a little blip in geologic time. We've been around as homo sapiens for 350,000 years. And all of a sudden, we just took off through, let's call it our technology, but it's our memes and our ability to transform environments. And again, it's, I want to avoid the tendency to criticize humans or, or make judgments on it. It's just that think very carefully about what was good for 800,000 or even 8 million people, you know, all those years ago, doesn't necessarily work for 800 million. It certainly is not, we're not prepared for what 8 billion of us are doing all of a sudden. 
in a in an instant of geologic time. We are over. I mean, we're like a bacterial culture that hit that critical mass and just went boom. And then pretty soon it hits the edge of the Petri dish and has used up all the nutrients. Then what happens? No, you, uh, in the book, you have that one graph. And I, I, I mean, I've always seen it, but I just, again, reading through it and that illustration of the human population, it's just, it's straight up yeah. in the last and, couple yeah. of years. Yeah. And I don't think, I don't think that has filtered through from science to, to people. I and mean, it's still like, uh, I don't, you can have an opinion about overpopulation and, you know, a lot of people want to, ah, it's not that big a deal. It's a, it's a huge deal. It's changing everything. We have lost seven of every 10 big critters on the planet in the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. not species. That's just sheer numbers. Right. Yeah. And we, but we do stand to lose a third to half of the species by the end of the century. So this is serious stuff. And, you know, you, I guess you can, you can try saying all the things conservationists have already tried, which is save that plant, that rare plant, because it may have a, it may hold a cure for cancer or it's just plain beautiful or, but that beetle over there may have some structural ability in its genes that we could borrow from and make better buildings, better tanks, better, who knows what. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Get the military money. Oh, yeah, we'll get the military it. money. Um, yeah. No, but I mean, uh, butterfly wings are a model for optical filters in internet communications these days. Um, you don't know. And it's so, it's way, way too soon to be, if we do have it, one flaw as a species, it is just to be so self aware like no other primate. The dolphins are self-aware, you know, the great apes are self-aware, I'm sure whales are, but we're self-absorbed. And, you know, to, and we, and that leads to a certain kind of arrogance. Well, we can do without that critter, that plant, that beetle, that whatever it is, and not knowing a darn thing about it, really. And, mm-hmm. and, or it's, especially it's connections to other parts of the the community and the ecosystem that support us. So that that's what needs to get across to the public. I think um, we we're we're a bit in denial, and and I think we haven't we haven't awakened to the nature of this change from eight million people to eight billion people in a mm-hmm. in a eye blink. So, mm-hmm. well, you've—I mean, you've, you've traveled the world, been many, many places. You still have places to go. I know you said that. Hey, yep. Is there something that you've seen how humans impacting the world really surprised you when you saw it? You were like, "Oh my goodness, I never knew," or it just—it just hits you in the gut, and you're like, "Wow." Well, I—I I don't know. It, yeah, you're you know you get into social philosophy, and I'm I'm yeah. just another guy on the bar stool next to you with opinions. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I have been a lot of places where I was. Well, let me let me back up. I've been in parts of the Amazon with you know grass skirt people who uh, the Kayapo Indians who 
live a life that made me come home and want to raise my kids that way. They lived mm -hmm. in small, isolated communities. Um, we like to think people at that stage of development are struggling very hard to survive. They worked about two to three hours a day because the, the wildlife around them was so rich, the rivers, mm -hmm. the forest. And, and, but we convince ourselves that what we're doing is progress. And what I've been shocked by, I guess, in my travels is I got to see that aspect of human nature. And then I go to highly developed areas where the quality of life for people looks really miserable. I don't know if you've been in Delhi or Beijing, mm. but you know, you literally can't see mm. and you literally mm. can't breathe. It's yeah, like no, Montana yeah, yeah. In, in the worst yeah. fire season ever, which we're yeah. in the middle of, but, um, and the safety and the, you know, just the day-to-day -day existence is, it's a gut level of survival that, that I, I'm amazed humans put up with, mm -hmm. but then that gets, that grades off into social and political power structures. And I'm not the guy to ask about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's why I work with animals. People are really confusing. Yes, yes. <laughs> No, that's a good point, though, because you said, you know, they, they work two to three hours a day to get what they need, and then they can focus on family and, and social interactions, where for us yeah, yeah, in yeah. Western societies, we we work minimum eight-hour days yeah. you know, to survive, 50, 60-hour weeks. That's an interesting yeah, – that, that, that is very philosophical. That's a long discussion. Yes, yeah, that is. That <laughs> is. But I, I see it in animals, too, in a, in a rich – habitat especially it comes back to the mammals but but you know you mentioned killer whales and elephants mm -hmm. i mean you, they spend a lot of time playing they spend a lot of mm -hmm. time exploring interacting with each other yeah um and elephants as as you probably know even pay attention to their dead they carry around the bones of deceased animals mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, killer whales will form a circle around a female carrying her deceased calf on her snout. And it's almost it's ceremonial. And we don't know what's going on. But to dismiss them as, as so different from us as we've done, that, that's a field of biology that you asked what would be exciting for younger people. Um, that's the tricky one because when you start to ascribe certain qualities or project certain human qualities onto animals, then you're in risky territory. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. and you know, anthropomorphism, but we've worked so hard to avoid it that we find ourselves missing some essential things about the nature of the other lives that share the planet. And I would, we need to find a language for that. And we need to find a way of discussing it in, and analyzing it if we're going to study it. And I think that's a real frontier there. But it's going, yeah. to, take, going to take some very creative and, so, and aware people to do it. So have at it, please. No, yeah, I mean, I even feel that like the last three, four years doing this podcast, we're like very careful not to assign those human traits to species, especially when we talk culture. Because you feel like, oh, I can't go there because, you know, that ruins my scientific credibility if I yeah, anthropomorphize yeah, yeah. orcas. Right. Yeah. But 
you're right. You can't ignore what you see and these family groups and these, these complex behaviors that, you know, even birds, crows, ravens, you know, oh, especially, yeah, especially yeah, them. Yeah. yeah. In the book, in the book. Yeah. Well, you mentioned um, my trip to New Zealand, to the coast of New Zealand and then down yeah. to the Aucklands, but um, it was classic because I, I work a lot with whales um, or researchers who were working with whales. Mm. And when I was down there, the right whales gather and socialize among the islands. And some came over to, as always, to study us. You know, you'd, we would say, oh, they're just curious. But they would come over and linger and look and see that big eye staring at you. And some came close to the boat I was on. I jumped in with a snorkel um, and mass so I could watch them underwater. And the visibility was awful. And I, I finally, I'm, I'm swimming along. Where the heck did the whales go? And all of a sudden, it's like all I can see is a whale. And I'm, oh I'm nose to nose with one, but that doesn't, I can't say as eye to eye because the eyes are like eight feet away on the side yeah. of their head. <laughs> but I, anyway, th I was being studied by an 80 ton creature. And I've had grizzlies come over and do the same thing. People are nervous it's, and they attribute all these things. Well, the grizzly wants to do this. It wants to eat us. It wants to, you know, something or other. And it's like, no, it wants to know what's going on. And I, rem I remember the whale incident because I ran out of there and I had to leave this titan that I was uh, <laughs> getting to know. <laughs> and, I, and I head for the surface and, and I, my head bumps into something and I go, Oh crap. I've uh -oh. got a whale on my head. <laughs> so, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to push this 80 ton thing off my head. Right. Which means right, right. I'm going to push myself down before it flukes. And I go spinning off into the, into the Davy Jones locker. Um, but it, that happens with uh, humpbacks and orcas and other whales I've been with. And sperm whales have a brain six times the size of ours. And I'd love to know more. I mean, I bet you've read about their cultures. There, there are serious studies of those, but I'd love to know what, they're, what they make of us. And I know blue whales were really hard to find for a long time and to keep up with. Very shy, as we call them. But now that it's been decades since some populations were hunted, um, they're starting to come over and get boat friendly and study the people. And that seems to be their natural inclination. Why not? If you've got a brain that size. No, I know. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I know. Off California, you know, where I grew up, they're migrating. And here off New Zealand, my goal is to see a blue whale before I die. I, I just, you know, the few thousand that are left, I, I would be honored to see one out there. It's, it's amazing. Like, I, I just finished watching, uh, it was on Disney Plus, The Secret Life of Whales. And they do talk a lot about this in culture and I highly recommend that. But I mean, traveling around the world, do you have any favorite places that stick out? And then also, have you noticed a change over your career in the environment, you know, as you've gone around, you know, that that's one of the things I, I think Sir David Attenborough is doing now. He's talking about, wow, in my career, I've seen this and this change. Same thing with you, correct? Like, you know, in your career. Well, I watched the, his show about that, and it was very powerful. 
Um, listen, before I address that, I I was very taken, Chris, by your question about, uh, you know, what would you recommend for people contemplating a career? And I, I find myself, I tend to talk about the big charismatic mammals. And I have spent an awful lot of time with grizzly bears and goats and wild camels and that sort of thing. Um, but I would consider entomology and forget that it's a big mouthful of a word. I would consider going out and looking at insects because 85% of the species on land that we know of are insects. And we're not counting the microbes, of course, but there are 4,600 species of mammals on the planet. There are at least 400,000 species of beetles alone. And if you want to see nature without looking through a microscope and being, in, you know, inside, if you want to go outdoors and be a naturalist and you want to see nature at her most creative, I would go look at the insects. And the, the entomologists I know can go out in your yard or much like going to the mountains in Montana, going to a prairie. And if they're really looking hard and, and capturing specimens, they're going to come back with three new species they can name just in a day's and afternoon's work. And then finding out about their lives and what they, what they interact with. And, you know, I'm, I'm the big mammal guy that, goes out and looks at the carcass of an elk that a mountain lion killed and say, oh, there's a bunch of beetles. But the, the beetles are doing all the work of decomposing this thing, carrying it off in different parts of the ecosystem, just like dung beetles do with elephant poop in Africa. They fertilize the whole darn savanna. And there are hundreds and hundreds of species of those alone. And so, I don't know. I'm uh, That's... It, it still has that stigma of that. That's for geek scientists. <laughs> that's for, you know, entomologists. They're a different yeah, breed. No, they um, are. They are. But my, um, uh, my ex, my ex is an entomologist. Uh, can we move on? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no, it, it is. It, you're right though. It, it is such a, it's a field of science that we don't know a lot about our tag and our, in our, animal episodes is there's over 7 million animals around the planet. That's mostly insects. Yeah. Not mammals exactly, exactly. <laughs> or birds. Yeah. It's insects. And well, and, and when I was in Australia, uh, I went up to the Daintree rainforest mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. was looking at weaver ants and that idea of, I was asking what's an individual when you look at a tree, when you look at, when I look at you on the screen, um, but with ants, I was looking, I was really aware I was looking at a, not just a collective, but a super organism. I was looking at colonies of half a million to a million individuals. And some of them are out, uh, I, I guess I'd call them ranching, they're farming, they're tending scale insects from which they collect honeydew and they place them on the plants, they guard them, they bring the stuff back to the hive. Others are hunting and foraging and guarding the queen and feeding the larvae and so on. And these are, you know, 
like nanobots. They're, they, they don't have that much behavioral flexibility, but what they carry off is this complex society that scientists study to understand how to move a lot of resources most efficiently, how to get rid of waste in cities, how to design subway systems, that kind of thing. So there's, there's again, there's so many ways to go oh. in biology, but mm -hmm. I'm, I'm kind of sticking with the insects for a minute. I, I, they are oh, just they're... endlessly fascinating. And, oh, yeah. Uh, so anyway, that um, that's just a that's thought. A, that's, and like, no, that's very good advice, though. It, it really is because it is a field of science that there's a lot of opportunity. And like I would like you talk about ants. If I had to study entomology, it would be ants by far. Yeah. They're so fascinating. They're just and by Amazing. the way, we, we, we share about 40% of our genes with them, too. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I could say I'm 40% ant, but again, that wasn't, that wasn't the title that was probably going to sing. No, no, um, no. I still, I still love the wine grape one. That cracks me <laughs> up. But yeah, all, all the comparisons of DNA. Okay. You know, like you said. That's my next book. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's oh, yeah. It's, it, at the end, we'll talk about some of your others because you've you written 14, which is amazing. One area I wanted to ask you about, and my partner and I, She's stuck in the UK right now. I'm trying to get her into New Zealand once this COVID stuff blows over. Her and I, the last couple of years, have really jumped into forest bathing. And you talk about this uh, in the book uh, a little uh, bit. I do. Just tonight, I was saying, or tonight, well, it's morning here for me, but saying goodnight to her. She was talking about earlier today, she went out into nature and she's just like, I just, every time I go outdoors, walk in the woods, I feel instantly better. I'm a big subscriber to that. I go out, I actually touch trees and just take deep breaths because I realize some of the pheromones and you know other things that are influencing me. But you write about this in the book, so I wanted to, I really wanted to address it. From what you've experienced and, and wrote about, how does nature influence human biology? Um, besides the fact that it built us, yes, <laughs> and our reflexes and our those mm -hmm. senses. We have, remember, we're, we're 350,000-year-old Homo sapiens, and we've got several million years of being a hominid, uh, you know, a primate. Um, and it was all spent in, there was, nobody ever went out into the wild for, for you know, several million years mm -hmm. of, of uh, our evolution because every place was wild. Wild, yeah. Okay, yeah. so... That's what's shaping our physiology, our reflexes, our instincts, and more recently, our our prayers. There's a reason people advertise cars with jaguars, and, you know, mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. like that. Um, we have these iconic species everywhere. We, I can't explain it. That's another frontier I think people need to jump into is that physiological basis of we again we don't have a language for it and a lot of scientists shy away from it because it sounds like you've gone all woo woo when you say i went out into nature and i just felt right but if you go out with a pack of medical gear and probes and analytical machines you find that your heart rate slows and your blood pressure drops and your immune system gets bolstered, strengthened. Mm -hmm. And there are studies from all over the world saying you people with more contact with nature are not only healthier, but 
not surprisingly, live longer. So there it is, exactly how and why is still being debated. But I'm very much with you. I, I have almost unconsciously sought out wild places to immerse myself and all my senses in a natural setting. And I couldn't tell you why. It just felt yeah. so, so right. Um, but a lot of doctors are starting to recommend, instead of giving you another pill, they're saying, I'm recommending more contact with nature mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it may affect your microbiome too, uh, what you're exposed to out there, the pheromone, the sense, the volatile compounds coming off of green vegetation. Um, there's some measurable effects, but boy, this is another developing frontier that I think is fascinating. And, and it brings up the question of what we're doing in the environments we create for ourselves and what we define as progress. There's bigger, busier, more crowded and, and more polluted cities, the way to go. Um, there's wonderful things about cities, not being critical. It just, uh, they're stimulating, they're, they're efficient in a lot of ways, but um, the quality of life would, if, Someone says, what can I do as one person out of 8 billion? I'd say, go make a little green space in your neighborhood. Mm -hmm, go mm -hmm, make a mm -hmm. park for kids mm -hmm. to get down their hands and knees and follow bugs around and, and uh, just breathe good air and be in a green place. And you can go from there to going out to save big wild tracts of land and, and, and wildlife, but... Um, I'm, I, I notice when you ask me a question, I get wound up on something and then I've diverted it from what have, you asked, what have I noticed of changes in my, you know, during my travels? And what I mostly notice are vast tracts of land where I go looking for animals. I talk to the people and they say, there used to be many, many over here. I think they went over the mountain. I think they all went over the mountain. So I go to the other side of the mountain. I talk to the people and they say, used to be many, many over here, but I think they went to the other side of the mountains. <laughs> no, they didn't. I, I was just there. Um, I don't know how much, you know, it's the human ability to detect these changes. If it doesn't, if it's not big and dramatic and happening under your nose, we tend to, What's what's our baseline? A lot of people mm -hmm. come to Montana and say, oh my gosh, the wildest place I've ever been in my life. Look at all these mountains. Yeah. And I say, well, yeah, but you're in Glacier Park and Glacier Park is a million acres and that's not big enough to support large animals over time, genetically yeah. or, yeah. you know, in terms of adapting to changing mm -hmm. conditions like climate. Mm -hmm. um, it's got to be connected to other wild places. Mm -hmm. And they and they don't get it because it's like this is the wildest place I've ever seen. How can this not? I'm from New Jersey and I'm looking at eleven thousand foot peaks. How can this yeah. not be big enough for grizzly bears and wolverines and lynx? Yeah. And um, so the, we have we have a lot of education ahead of us. I think mm -hmm. to get people to to think on a scale of big and connected and allowing nature to work at full strength. If we can do that then whatever else we're looking for is in our goals as a society, um, it will be healthier and more vibrant in the future. 
-hmm. And mm -hmm. instead of just discarding it or degrading it to where, you know, we're, we're dealing with problems one after the other. No, God, I could do this all day. Like, just, <laughs> <laughs> we go get a beer somewhere or drink. Yeah, water, yeah, yeah. I'll go get uh, one I'll out just... of the fridge, but it's only 10 o'clock <laughs> in your time. So. <laughs> the morning here. It is. It just is. I, I, it, it's just because your wealth of experience and, and, and you've, you've seen so much in your lifetime. And that's why I'm glad you're writing and you're capturing it and sharing these stories. One thing I, I did want to bring up too, because in one of your chapters, you talk about exposing children to pathogens at young age, being out in nature. We have sterilized everything too much, right? I mean, not the COVID pandemic that, yeah, I'm not even going there. Just everyday life, you know, you, you talk about some of those links. Can you just briefly touch upon that? Well, if I'm picking up on it right, <laughs> I put it this way when when i go across the american prairie which had 60 million bison and you know wolves and grizzlies and pronghorn and elk and so on and and i you know the prairie grasses are still there um the tall grass prairies are almost gone because <clears throat> they're the most fertile but that wasn't a matter of being lucky in terms of geology and soil. That was the work of generations of roots and microbes building that fertility. And on the surface of bison and all these grazers creating the riches mm -hmm. and, and the interaction between that and the recyclers, that's what built all that deep black soil. And I don't think a lot of people I don't think would miss that rich ecosystem and the riches that, you know, the settlers encountered because it hasn't been there in their lifetime. And I find that in a lot of the world. It just, um, you know, no one remembers when tigers used to, well, when yeah. lions used to be in Greece and brown bears mm -hmm. used to be in Great Britain. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that long ago. So uh, I would say if to anyone who has a chance, and I know a lot of people don't have, you know, ready opportunities for these things, but if you can go into an intact wilderness and just, just watch and observe. Yeah. Um, and of course, worldwide, I think you asked earlier about some favorite places and, and, I don't really have them, but but a coral reef always, because that's the most ancient and richest diversity of life on the planet. And uh, you know, I, I can I can go to mountains in Wyoming, not far away, and go caving at ten thousand feet. And when I'm on my back crawling through a space, I'm looking up at fossil corals. Oh, that's crazy. You know, the, those mountains are built from ancient reefs. And, mm -hmm. and life's been at work in the sea, refining and adapting for, you know, billions of years. So um, I would say if you can, just with a snorkel, you know, however you can do it, just go out and spend some time watching because it's, it's just a celebration. 
of the diversity of life. And of course, there are a lot of sad-looking reefs these days. When, I know, I know. But I'm, that's that's the part I hate to say. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. get into biology. Except, wow, there's a lot of. I mean, that's what we're doing right now. Is we are impoverishing the the living planet. Yeah, and yeah. we're not copping to it. So get busy. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Well, I just got a, a couple more questions because, again, I, I, this could turn into a four-hour interview. I, oh, my gosh, some of the places you've been. So based on everything you've seen in your life, you've written about, you've experienced, what's your outlook? Because in in your book, you do talk about some feel-good stories. You know, you do talk about some successes. Yeah, what works. Yeah, There are many out there, and I always tell our listeners there's – for every species, I think besides hippos, that's the only one we haven't found an organization for. There's a group of people working on conservation yeah. for them. So what's our outlook right now for our wild spaces and, and wild animals? I think, look, I to be a conservationist, um, you're not helping if you're a crabby, judgmental, uh, gloomy guy or gal. And... I, I think you have to be a willful optimist. And I think, as you said, there are plenty of projects and places where you can see what's been saved, what's been restored in many cases. I could take you to trout streams or, or rivers um, here in the Pacific Northwest in North America where um, salmon are returning because they took out dams or they restored the spawning grounds or they changed the logging practices. Um, grizzly bears, which I keep mentioning because I'm extra fond of them and they make me feel more alive when I'm in their country. But they, I thought I would lose them during my lifetime because they, we were down to fewer than probably 750 in the lower 48 States uh, in the mid 1970s. They have rebounded. And it's a great credit to a society that we took the biggest, most potentially, well, it's not as dangerous as, as a, you know, a microbe. Right? We've all yeah, learned yeah. that. Right, um, right. No kidding. Uh, makes for better stories. But, you know, um, but we have struggled and, and started to succeed at learning how to live with them and make space for them not go out in our arrogant way and leave food around, you know, and, and attractants and then the dry and bears and then kill them because we felt threatened. Um, a lot of people have changed their habits and the way they live on the land, how they camp, all that sort of thing. It's a struggle, but um, I, I don't know. I could, there, there are communities in Africa where, there's more wildlife on communal grazing lands than there is in some of the national parks because they're def they've got their own anti-poaching patrols and their own ecotourism. And conservationists have started to support community-based protection of wildlife. What's in it for the people that live there or nearby? And before it's been a little more exclusionary, like let's go out and save Mount Baldy and put a fence around it and keep everybody out and we'll have nature. And first that doesn't work because Mount Baldy has to be connected to some other wild places. 
Um, and the story along the Rockies here is just like East Africa. If you can string together those beautiful jewels of national parks and allow the animals to move between them with the droughts and the changing climates and whatever they need to do and, and exchange genes, we will, we can keep nature. We can keep a heck of a lot of nature. And so I think it's really important not to focus on the, the negative too, but instead focus on our greater selves or our more than human connections. And then we'll want to keep these things in our lives. These other, look, we might be the only, I don't know, who knows? Maybe you do. Are we the only planet with life on it in the universe? No. I don't know. <laughs> no, you've been talking about that. Yeah, that was a good chapter. Yeah, yeah but I mean, yeah. it, it. as far as we know right now, this is it. Mm-hmm. And there's fellow travelers. I'm four-fifths of all those furry ones. And 24% of wine grape. Don't want to lose those. <laughs> um, no, no, no. But I, I, I see enough examples of what works. And, and I, I, I just think it, it's not enough of a, of a public discussion. I think education can change to where we redefine nature because we need to get at the nature and us and all those connections between us and other things uh, otherwise it becomes a like i said uh it's almost like a another one more competing special interest let's all go save more birds or save more wetlands or something but do we really need them so uh yeah they're us and they're yeah. our long-term yeah. future and they're how comfortable we're going to be in future generations of people we're either going to have a healthy planet or not and we're going to be either healthy or not depending on how much contact we have with nature uh it's again the book talks a lot about our interconnectedness and it forfeits a grizzly highly recommend it Final question, where can our listeners find this book and then all your other books that you've written? I mean, Amazon's an obvious place, but anywhere else they can go? Well, yeah, most of them are, Are I guess you could jump on, um, gee, um, there are a lot of sites that carry many, many of those books. Um, a lot of them, I'm, I'm an older guy, so a lot of them, <laughs> you got to dig up. a little. And not yeah. all out there in the uh, at your grocery store by the counter, but right. um, yeah, Patagonia has published the last uh, well, counting this one, three books that I've done, and I think they're a wonderful company. They work really hard to illustrate and design, and and help with every stage of this four fifths of grizzly. And uh, I'd patronize them if I had a chance, if I were someone looking for a book. They're, they sell them along with some, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to advertise their gear. Yeah, I, I, I know, I know. I wear it. It's good stuff. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, go take a look. Um, yeah. No, yeah, the book's beautiful. It's a beautiful, I mean, the imagery, the illustrations, it, it is a very gorgeous book. This is one you, you definitely want. And any social media or websites that, that they can find more of your work? Uh, not from me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, your Instagram? Don't you have an Instagram? <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I don't mean to be a fuddy-duddy about no, it. No, I just, no. I'm right there with you. I, no, look, as, well, yeah. And I, as a writer, I spend 
here I am extolling the virtues of contact with nature. And I spend way too much time as it is staring at a computer screen and writing. Yeah, I know, and I don't want to spend any more. That's why I don't yeah. do social media. Yeah. But, yeah. um, you know, there's I've got a Wikipedia site and okay. um, you can find, if you just type my name in, you'll, you'll find yeah. a lot of, uh, a lot of hits that you well, I'll, uh, refer I'll to link different it all books. In our show notes. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll link it in our show notes and, and a link to where you can find the book. But Doug, Doug Chadwick, Douglas Chadwick, oh my goodness. Uh, your next book, we got to have you on. So hurry up and get writing. Get out to <laughs> nature every day. But... <laughs> okay, thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I would love to have you back. I, it's fascinating. I, I'm going to jump in and, and, and get some more of your books and maybe pick your brain some more because somebody with such an illustrious career the stuff you've seen, the knowledge you've gained, the experiences you've had, I, I just, it, it's good to share with the world. And I know you do that through your writing. So thank you so much for what you do. Well, thank you. And and I'm, I'm going to go back one more time to younger folks looking for a career. And that's why I said, just jump in because that's all I've ever, I never had a long-term strategy or, or plan. Uh, Certain animals will fascinate me. Most people studying animals are impoverished biologists that could use some extra help at some level. And just go out and go for it. And and pretty soon you'll find yourself having a, I, I don't know about illustrious career if I, I qualify <laughs> on that, but you'll have been a lot of places and seen a lot of things that will last all your lifetime. And, yes. um, and give back to the nature that supports it. So again, thank you so much for yeah. taking the time. And it's been fun. No, thank you. Really fun. Thank you. Take care. I will. <laughs>